Let me just highlight this real fast. We have amazing youth and kids' life coordinators, don't we? Yeah. That's them uncaffeinated as well, weirdly enough. That's how excited they are to just be here on a good day. So, friends, it's my first weekend preaching after um, my, my wife, Sarah, and I welcomed our son into the world, Benna McKenzie Robert Hands, which is great. Thank you. Um, I'm assuming hopefully people are clapping online as well. In the first service, I announced that one person was like, "Woo!" I was like, okay, that's fine. I'm happy to have a go again. They were lots more gracious the second time around. Uh, obviously, I did nothing. My wife did everything. She is amazing, and we are very blessed. He's not, he came to the first service, which is where uh, you know, he's, he's experiencing community as a two-week-old at the moment, and it was fantastic. Friends, I'm excited to be back because there's a lot of good things happening across the life of New Life. I want to let you know of a couple of really quick changes before we get started today. If you're joining us online, you will know how pivotal our online community is. In fact, right now, friends, we have a couple hundred people in the room, but we will have about 350 to 400 people joining us online right now. Our largest worshiping community is our online community. From not only around the Gold Coast, but Australia and the world, people are streaming into what God is doing here at New Life. And we believe that in this new day and age, we want to make sure we're doing everything we can to reach people with the gospel and the community of the gospel as well. So we've appointed Pastor Calvin Masson to actually run point on our online community. We're going to be starting small groups. We're going to be doing a whole bunch of different things. I'm not going to announce too much yet because Calvin's going to do it at another time. But the reason why I say this is we want to let you know how we are intentionally seeing what God is doing, not just here, but wherever He is pushing the message of the gospel. On top of that, Calvin's also running point on our Alpha program. Now, if you're like, I'm not handing my Alpha card to someone random. Calvin goes to the gym this week, and there is a guy there just like curling weights or something. And Calvin's like, hey, bro, you ever done Alpha? He's like, no, why are you talking to me? And Calvin's like, you should try Alpha. The guy turns around and goes, Thanks, man. I'll give it a go. No word of a lie. That skit we just did on stage works, friends. In fact, 98% of the people registered for Alpha are people who are either new to faith or have never heard the gospel before this time around, which is amazing. God is so good. We'd love to invite you to be seeing who might God be inviting you to invite. On top of that, we have some other staff changes happening. John Morris is stepping into the role of executive uh, pastor. He's going to be overseeing the operations, the central services of the family. And so we are looking, and the council approved this last Tuesday night on our, at our first meeting, for an associate pastor. We'll be making that announcement and putting out a job description for that in the coming weeks. And I say all of this for this simply. Would you join with us as we pray? As we continue to plant more churches to see more people more like Jesus, we want to make sure we're following His leading, that when we plant churches, it doesn't happen at the expense of our current churches, and that our current churches grow as well as the new opportunities God brings before us as well. So on that note, let me pray for these changes and also for what God has laid on our hearts to share today. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come before you right now, I pray that you would continue to lead us boldly into the future as a new, as a new life family of churches. Lord, every single week we see more people become more like you. But God, right now we know that there is a world that is hurting. There is a world that is in need of the gospel. And so I pray that as a church that you would help us to position with wisdom, that we would send out disciples with the good news, but also go to where those who need to hear the gospel are. We thank you for those who are joining us online right now. 
And we thank you for their plugging into community. May they be blessed wherever they are hearing this audio being broadcasted. Father, we, we turn just to where you're leading us today. As we have crucial conversations, give us boldness to know that you go with us. That into topics and to subjects that may be sensitive and hard, good shepherd, you walk with your sheep. So soften our hearts to your reality right now. We pray these things, and mainly, less of me, O oh God, more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In 2019, a post came out by a famous Christian leader. A post that shocked me, that rocked me, because I knew this Christian leader and had followed his ministry for quite a while. In 2019, a gentleman posted on Instagram that he was walking away from the faith. He was a songwriter, a worship leader, and quite a famous Christian. And it was one of those moments where I took a deep breath in. Surely this could have happened to anyone else, but this guy who since I was young had been writing and leading in the local church. And he posted on Instagram to the world and he listed his reasons for walking away from faith. He did so publicly, and it's not hard to find this post on the internet. He said, how many miracles happen? Not many, and no one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? And no one talks about it. How can God be loved yet send 4 billion people to a place all because they don't believe? And no one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet, he writes. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. Why? Because no one talks about it. Now, we've dived straight in today. Some of you, it's your first time in church, you're like, wow, we went heavy fast. It's because we've got a lot to cover, and I believe this is important. Because some of you know exactly what this phrase means. There is a frustration in the Christian church, and I think the world today, when the church has grown silent about the things that matter. See, I was shaken to my core for two reasons. Number one, mainly because I was shocked that this man had been leading for 20 years in the church and he had never found a space to talk about these crucial issues. The second reason why I was shocked is because as a young man, I had found space in the Christian church that boldly tackled these issues. And I don't believe it's true that the church never talks about things that matter. Why? Because I believe the Bible talks about things that matter. And if a church is going to teach and preach the word of God, then it will teach about the things that raise questions and queries in our hearts. Friends, we're entering into a series called Crucial Conversations. Why? Because our hope as a church is that you will never be someone who could walk away from your life and say, I've got to leave because they just never talk about it. We want to boldly step into the moments that are close to our heart. In fact, we believe Crucial Conversations is this. Our Crucial Conversation series is about having the conversations around things that matter to the heart of God that take place in the heart of humanity. Why is this important? Because Jesus spoke about the things that matter. Because Jesus stepped into crucial conversations all the time. In fact, in John chapter 3, we read a beautiful moment when Jesus... Here's a knock at the door. Proverbially, I'm assuming 
The Bible doesn't say someone knocked at the door. The Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 1, late at night, a man named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jewish council, came to see Jesus. But I want you to picture for a moment that Jesus is in a house in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, and he hears a knock. It's late at night. And so he comes downstairs. He opens the door. He doesn't see, G, he doesn't see, doesn't see Jesus. He doesn't see himself. He doesn't see Peter. He doesn't see Mary. He doesn't see John. He, does, he doesn't see a friend. He sees someone who he should think is a foe. He sees a man named Nicodemus. And this man named Nicodemus has come to him at night because he wants to talk about in darkness what he is afraid to discuss in the light of day. Why? Because Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And this Pharisee isn't just any Pharisee. He's one of the leading Pharisees, one of the religious elite. And the problem for Nicodemus is that he's seen Jesus in John chapter 2 come and turn tables over in the temple, come and upend the very system that, that Nicodemus was meant to uphold. And Nicodemus has questions. He's got concerns about the very faith that he is meant to lead. And he steps in. And here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus doesn't say it's too late. Jesus doesn't say it's too dark. Jesus doesn't say you are the very people who will one day crucify me on a cross. Jesus steps into the conversation. Why? Because crucial conversations matter to God. And friends, what we see in the story of Nicodemus, what we see in the story of Doubting Thomas at the end of the Gospels, what we see throughout the New Testament is that crucial conversations and crucial questions do not scare God. That today... If you can relate to the sentiment that no one talks about things that matter, we can look firstly to John chapter 3, where Jesus steps in to a man questioning Jesus' very identity. And Jesus says, let me invite you into a new way of life as you deconstruct your faith and maybe give birth to a new one. That's why this series is important. Because I can guarantee you this. Here at New Life, if we don't choose to choose talk about the things that are crucial in our culture and in our day, those conversations will happen. They just won't happen here. In fact, this man named David Kinnaman, he uh, did research through a group called the Barna Group, and he found out particularly in the younger generation that two-thirds of teenagers, two-thirds of teenagers who grow up in the church will leave the church by the time they arrive at adulthood. Now, I know New Life Youth Sunday is with us today. If you're a teenager, give me a whoop. They're there. That was a tick. They're, they're just still sleeping. They're like, I am not breaking conformity right now. Someone else can go first. Right? And teenagers, they're in this room. And friends, they may be joining you in church, but I guarantee you they have questions. And if we don't boldly learn how to answer the questions our culture is asking, statistic tells us the next generation will leave. Why? Not because they can't find answers, they just don't find answers in church. David Kinnaman goes on to say, many of us today turn to our devices to help us make sense of the world. Young people especially use the screens in their pockets as counselors, entertainers, instructors, even sex educators. That should scare us. Why build up the courage to have what will likely be an awkward conversation with a parent, a pastor, or a teacher when you can just ask your phone and no one else will be the wiser? Friends, we can say this is the next generation, but I would actually love to postulate this is many of us as well. That we hide the questions that we have, and so too they go unanswered, they go unresolved, and they go unspoken to. But here's what I've learned in my faith, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the scriptures can be trusted. They speak powerfully into the cultural moments of our day. And so too they speak into the biggest questions that we have. If we do not speak about these things, 
when we don't talk about these things that matter. The world loses the Christian witness from the cacophony of opinions that surround it. If we choose not to have these conversations, it does not mean they will not happen. They just will not be happened in the framework of biblical community. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about some different things. Today, we're going to talk about Jesus and deconstruction. Some of you are like, deacon what? I have no idea what that means. My aim by the end of today is not that you would only know what it means, but know why it's important we understand it. Next week, uh, we have a member of our church, Tim Buxton, who works on the front lines with refugees coming to share with us and have a conversation with John Morris about how refugees are close to the heart of God and how we can engage with that as Christians. The week after, we're going to be talking about women and leadership in the Bible, that we do not believe women should and can lead and preach and teach in the local church because of a cultural moment, but because we believe Scripture testifies that it is something that is appropriate and good. We believe that here at New Life, we're going to step into a moment we talk about medicine and miracles, how they are not... They're not dichotomous things, but how God uses both to outwork His goodwill and plan in the world. And finally, we'll talk about one of the big things that we talk often about here at New Life, but it often leads people to walk away from God. We're going to talk about God and suffering. But today, I want to take you to a moment, maybe 15 years ago, when I found myself in university. A bright, young, bushy-eyed, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I'm not quite sure what the reference is, but I was young and I was naive. And I went to university to study education of uh, a Bachelor of Education majoring in arts and majoring in history and religion. And I remember sitting in a history class one day as we began to look at this ancient faith of beliefs known as Zoroastrianism. And I sat there and we were pulling apart this historical faith and talking about, you know, why it came about. And someone made a comment where they said, yeah, it's weird to believe in this faith. It would almost be just as weird to believe in this faith as, as it would be to believe the Bible to be true. And I sat in this university lecturer, and I, I, I listened again. They said, someone else came in, and they said, yeah, you'd have to be really, really dumb to believe that the Bible was true. And as a Christian, this was my first experience. I looked around the room, and no one disagreed. They all nodded and they snickered and they laughed. And as a young Christian, I sat there in a moment, having grown up in a Christian household, going to a Christian school and attending a, a church all my life, and I felt completely unequipped. And I started to ask the question, am I wrong? Did I get this wrong? And it led me on a process over the next couple of years where my church growing up never spoke about the idea of could you trust the Bible, they just assumed that everyone did. Where I, I had to actually find conversations and places and people that would allow me push on the things of my faith that my faith might last university, might last adulthood. This was a process that I believe I walked through that at that stage I didn't know, but now in retrospect I would call as deconstruction. And today I want to talk about what deconstruction means, why it's dangerous, and why it's helpful. Because I think deconstruction is something that actually can lead us to maturity, fullness, and a resilient faith, but done in the wrong environments in the wrong way, and because of the wrong philosophical beliefs, can actually lead to not just deconstruction, but to destruction of the faith. Now, some of you will be here today going, I still have no idea what deconstruction means. I might duck out to the toilet while he's talking, and then I'll get a coffee afterwards with someone, and hopefully this service doesn't go too long. I want to let you know, stay with us today, because if you don't know what it means, someone in your world does, and someone in your world needs you to know. 
Some of you here today, you're walking through this right now. You have questions, concerns, and queries, and you're, you're worried about what is happening in the world around you and even the traditional values and beliefs you were raised with. And I want to let you know, if that is you and you are struggling at the moment with faith, you are so welcome here. This is a safe place for you, and I pray that we are able to journey with you as you find the Christian faith can be trusted and Jesus is King. The third group of people are those of you who know someone who's deconstructing, someone who's questioning and unraveling and not sure they want to believe in Christianity anymore. And I want to encourage you that God can give you handles and an understanding of how you might be a better witness for them in their time of need. Now, for those of you who are wondering, I'm not sure this is a big issue. This would be one of the single greatest issues I see as a pastor derailing the faith of teenagers and young adults coming through in the Christian church and in our world. And they are walking away and they're using deconstruction as like a buzzword to symbolize that they are doing something amazing and they should be allowed to do it. We must become versed in what this means. So what is deconstruction? Deconstruction simply is the process of evaluating, questioning, and even tearing down some of the traditional values and beliefs you have uh, because of a catalytic moment in your life. A guy named Dr. Eric Mason would say it like this, the process of deconstruction is when you reevaluate core beliefs as to whether or not the religious system you were raised upon or raised with or nurtured in is one you want to choose to continue being a part of and embracing. But to understand deconstruction, we must first understand that there first comes a construction. There is first a faith that is built. And to do this, I'm going to get Calvin to bring up my props on platform. Because um, number one, who doesn't like props in a sermon? If that's you, that's okay. Don't put your hand up. And please don't say anything in our chat online. It was a rhetorical question. Thank you, Calvin. For something to be deconstructed, it must first be constructed. And the, the one thing that we've got to recognize is everyone has a worldview or a system of beliefs that is constructed. Now, if you're in the Christian faith and you grew up in the Christian church, you will have had your faith constructed at children's church or something like that. And a lot of this is good. Our worldview is constructed around some simple, basic, and good truths. Maybe you learned that God created the heavens and the earth, and he created it all to be good. And that is a good thing, and we would affirm that belief deeply at New Life. You might have learned that the church community is one to invest in and be, belong to and be a part of, be accountable to, and to hold accountable as well. That the Bible is the inerrant, the infallible word of God. And so too, as you grow in your faith or in your worldview, things start to be said and you start to take on board belief systems. In fact, the time of deconstruction can often be a naive moment when in innocent we take on things without question or without concern because someone of authority said it to us. But not everything we take on when we're constructing our worldview or our faith is good. No matter what, the pastor should always be trusted and believed. If it's said from the pulpit, then it's truth. Why are you, sorry, why are you laughing? That Jeremiah 29.11 is a verse that is completely about your life and your context. Those of you who know, you know. That actually if you give to money to the church, then God will give you back money more and more. If you want a Ferrari, you just need to give more. And so what starts to happen is that there are some good things about how our faith is constructed. And then there are some really dangerous things about how our faith is constructed. And we start to see a faith that gets to be built over time. Now this is natural. In fact, this happens to everybody. You may be in the room and you may be an atheist. You too have gone through a similar process of adopting assumptions and beliefs and, and facts that have formed the way you see the world. Now, sometimes and often when construction happens well, when people disciple their children in beauty and in truth and the ways of scripture, deconstruction doesn't need to happen because what has happened is a firm and good foundation of things that were beautiful. 
But sometimes when people are taught and raised in a faith where we believe things just because the Bible said it without understanding why, we find ourselves in a university lecture room where someone pushes on our faith and we aren't actually aware how we can resist it. And so what happens so often, usually at the age of young adulthood, but sometimes in this age, is we walk through something known as deconstruction where we begin to question truths that we originally assumed to be good. Now, when we talk about deconstruction, we've got to recognize modern-day deconstruction is a fruit of what's known as postmodern philosophy, which is sometimes helpful, but in my opinion, can sometimes be really, really difficult. But postmodern philosophy brought in this idea that all truths should be questioned and you cannot know truth. The Christian faith does not believe this. We do believe that there are absolute truths and that you, whilst can question truth, it should lead you to develop and understand there are absolutes in the world. But deconstruction existed before postmodernism. In fact, it was sometimes a good thing. For instance, 500 years ago, a man named Martin Luther began to deconstruct the faith that he was handed by the Roman Catholic Church, which taught him that, hey, you know what? The Bible isn't something just for pastors and ministers, but it's actually for every single person to read and know and love. And he started to ask questions about this, this truth that had been told him that the Catholic Church wouldn't let others read the Word of God, only those who were ordained. And Martin Luther started to spawn with others the Reformation. And because he went through faithful deconstruction of long-held beliefs, we are actually better for it. And so the faith becomes stronger. Another moment of faith happened a couple years, years, 100 years ago when abolitionists started to question what if. What if man is created equal? Both black man and white man, every single colored man are all created equal in the image of God and their slavery should not exist. And so what was held as a Christian value, slavery became questioned that the Bible does not condone slavery. It actually condemns slavery. And so they questioned the faith. And so therefore, that became stronger. You see, friends, when we construct our faith, it leads us to the road to belief. When we deconstruct our faith, it leads us to the path of concern. And it's not always a bad thing. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, if I can jump there, Mark, Paul actually says that the Galatian church should have deconstructed some of the teachings that, we have, that they had heard. A, a group of leaders come along to the, to the Galatian church and they start to say, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. They were known as the circumcision party. And Paul writes them and says, this is not true. Amen? You should be a little bit more enthusiastic about that. Amen? People are like, what's circumcision? We're not going there today. And Paul writes them in Galatians 5, verse 7 to 9, you were running a good race. Things were going well for you. Who came in and cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? He identifies that they started to take on board things that were not of God and were not of the gospel and were not of Scripture. And so he says, this kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you a little yeast. A little bad teaching ruins the whole batch of dough. What's Paul saying here? You should question things that others say are unequivocally true. But for the Christian, we don't question them as the sole source of moral uh, responsibility but we hold them up to the, the faithful witness of Scripture and the revelation of Jesus. But I'll get to that in a moment. Why do I highlight this? Because before I get to where deconstruction can be unhelpful, there are actually moments when we can deconstruct certain beliefs through Scripture, by the power of the Holy Spirit, under the weight and in accountable community, where it can actually help us to form a better, more resilient, more biblical faith and worldview. We need to question cultural Christianity and ensure that we're not following culture with our faith. We're actually following the revealed biblical word of God. 
And that's why it's helpful. That when I grew up and I was told at times that to get more money from God, I should give more money to God. I'm so glad that there were faithful men and women who came and walked alongside me and said, that's not true. That's not why we give. That's not our motivation. That's the prosperity gospel and the prosperity doctrine, and it's so dangerous to the Christian faith. I'm so thankful they helped me deconstruct that belief. But there are other moments in our life where we see young people, we see old people, we see people of all ages and kinds start to deconstruct their faith because of things that maybe they're not questioned by a pastoral authority, but maybe they're questioned or they experience a moment in their world, both externally or internally, that shakes up their belief system. In fact, a guy named John Mark Comer goes on to say this. He says, there are are external and internal factors that lead this generation to deconstruct their faith. And some of you might know this. If I could get that, that image up on the screen, the first one there. He, um, if we go back one, that'd be great. He, he, oh, that, no, sorry, that was right there, Mark. I was looking at the wrong screen. The first external factor that leads us to deconstruct our faith is often broken trust. That people actually go through, they start to question Christianity, whether it's good or whether it's true, because their trust has been broken. By who? By the church. So often, or those in leadership in Christianity. And some of you here today know what this is like, where you too have experienced hurt and pain and had a breaking of trust with, with someone in, in the power and authority in the local church. And I just want to let you know that there are some people here today who didn't make it back to church on the other side of that pain, on the other side of that hurt. This is why, friends, we should take into very serious consideration that just because a pastor says something doesn't mean it's true that we should be responsible for making sure we understand the words spoken from the front are biblical, are true, and are godly, and they are good. But on the other side of that, I would encourage those of you who have experienced that broken trust in the church to not let that, that moment, to rob you of stability in the faith when we start to assume that Christians and Christ are synonymous. We're in a really dangerous moment. Because friends, for those of you who have been hurt by the church, as I have, The church didn't hurt you. The capital C church didn't hurt you. A people in a place at a time belonging to a local congregation who were broken and finding their way home made bad decisions and were disobedient to the Bible and to God and they in that moment hurt others. Because too many people walk away from church or from gathered community because of the failure of man and they say this, I still love Jesus but I just can't do church right now. And I think that's really good for a time, for healing, to make sure that you find a community that's safe, that's biblical. But on the other side of that, I I, I just say this, that I don't actually know if we can follow Jesus and and be following as disciples and not be involved in a local committed community. Because Jesus doesn't have the luxury of leaving his bride. He's very invested in the bride of Christ, which is the church. And he is not shocked that over the last 2,000 years, the church is responsible for atrocities, its hurt and its pain. But there are local congregations that are responsible for, for localized hurt as well. But what he wants is he's calling us to always be reforming, be better, to actually return to Scripture and to goodness. And I want to say this, that friends, if that has happened, if you've been hurt by a church, I do not want to excuse it. I pray that you would find forgiveness in your heart and that Jesus could heal it. But do not give up on what God can do in a local gathering and body of believers. New life has hurt people. I've had moments where I've had to apologize because my leadership in my brokenness, I've hurt others. 
But my hope has always been this. God, do not let me be the reason why someone stops following you because I got it wrong. Sometimes people deconstruct their faith because of cheap grace and low discipleship. When we talk about this idea that all that it means needs to follow Jesus is that he forgives you of your sins and then you can live the way you want and do what you want in whatever way you want to, then we actually lead people up to fail. Grace, friends, is free for us, but it costs Christ a lot. But it does come at a cost to us as well as we lay down our lives and ask Jesus to have authority over them as our king and we follow him. When we do not preach to the next generation that there is a serious sense of sanctification and molding to become like Christ, then when pressure comes on them for their sin, they walk away rather than walking closer because they think that we're preaching something other than grace. When grace always calls us to become more like Jesus. Some people walk away from church because of a wounded heart. And, 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 and the reason, sorry, back one more. Sorry, Mark, I jumped. The last reason why people walk away from church is what we're going to call ascendant secular ideologies. John Mark Comer came up with this framework. And, and this idea is when we have things in our culture that are unquestioned, that are unchallenged, that the church doesn't speak about, things like women in leadership, and so the culture around us has a better understanding and value of women than the church does when the church doesn't actually say, what does the Bible say about this, not what culture says about it. So the faith is weakened. When culture starts to say you can be whoever you want to be and your identity is a figment of whatever your imagination can come up with in this moment and the church doesn't speak into it, the young people go, well, the culture's talking about this more than the church is and so maybe the culture's actually got more to offer me. This stuff's important. These are external. Then the internal factors, which I'll move through fast because of time, are these things where there is digital input and low scripture. The Barna Group came back and found out that young adults are consuming 3,000 hours of digital media, that if you are a Christian, only 250 hours of that digital media is Christian content, which means that 2,750 hours of digital media consumed in a year for young adults is all non-Christian. So the majority of their formation is not coming from Christian community. It's not coming from God. And so we have low scripture and we're reading through the Becoming program. And I just want to say this, for some of us, reading through the Bible together this year has been optional. Knowing the word of God has been optional. But for a generation that is being told that truth is out there and not in here, it can no longer be optional for us, friends, to know the word of God and be steeped in its truth that we might offer it to another generation. There is this wounded heart Nearly everyone that goes through deconstruction, John Mark Comer says, comes from a place of hurt, either real. Maybe you've walked through suffering. You don't feel like God answers that suffering well. Or you've walked through pain and unforgiveness in a community and you're just struggling. You knew you were out. And f- but wounds can actually lead us to question God's reality. And finally, that we have a lack of the fear of God, that we actually do not hold God in awe. He becomes buddy Jesus rather than the holy King of kings and Lord of lords who created all things and through all things are made. We do not have accurate understanding of God in his transcendence nor his closeness and his imminence as well. And I say this, friends, because we can go, or people are deconstructing their faith just because they want to go have sex and the church says no. It's so much more complicated than that. And we have to robustly step into this that we might offer another generation a better way forward to say, hey, we are listening and we understand. But some of you are deconstructing. And I say this to you today only so that you might know if some of this stuff is your story, it's okay. But I believe there's a better truth. I believe there's a better hope. And I believe there's a better way. That we as a church need to give people permission to deconstruct, but not give people permission to leave community as they deconstruct. 
Because one of the things when people start challenging faith is that they actually do stuff and they, they do it away from godly community. They do it by themselves, alone. And as they're questioning, they surround themselves with podcasts. And podcasts have this great term at the moment where they're saying, we're loving the community that's forming on this podcast. What they're literally saying is, we're loving people who are listening to us talking at you for an hour. And they're calling that community. And as community is formed, what happens is that doubt increases, questions increase, and deconstruction slowly but surely only leads to something, friends, which I will call as destruction. Because what deconstruction does is it calls us away from God, the community, not into it. So we must be a place where it's safe for people to question, but it's also expected that we will offer and walk with them through robust answers. That's why we must be a people of faith who do not just say, I believe it because the Bible says it. That's a bumper sticker faith that's never saved anybody. People want to know why the Bible says what it says. Can Jesus be trusted? And here's my, my testimony. I believe it can. And I believe he can be trusted. Why? Because over my time, I've been surrounded by godly men and women who allowed me not just to deconstruct my faith, but for the next step to happen. Reconstruction. And reconstruction is the road to what I want to call orthodoxy. Now, when I say orth not what I want to call, what is called orthodoxy. That's not a term I just came up with. Some of you are like, orthodoxy sounds like we're all going to be wearing robes and waving around incense. Like, I don't know if that's what I'm about. Orthodoxy is not about a traditional church. Orthodoxy literally means orthodoxy, right belief. It's about actually going, okay, well, what is true? And the Christian faith doesn't believe what is true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. We believe in a Savior that says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, which means that we should be able to press on the truths of the Bible and find that they can be tested and built upon. We should not be afraid when young people come with questions, but boldly walk with them, because if Jesus is the truth, guess whose responsibility it is to reveal the truth to us if we are faithful in following him? Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so what we do is we start to reconstruct our faith. We start to rebuild and friends, some of you here have been so busy deconstructing that we haven't, you haven't actually stepped into the commitment of what does it mean to construct and reconstruct a faith that is based on truth. You might be like, well, Michael, how do we know the Bible is true? Friends, it's a really great question for a different sermon at a different time. But at some stage for your construction of your worldview, you have to choose an authority to believe. And too often what people do is they give culture and the world around us the power to be the authority over their worldview. And what they do is, is, is they do this. Christian, we'll go to the second line. Too often people use the world to deconstruct Scripture and its authority over the church. Whereas Christians use Scripture to deconstruct the world and the, and the church and the way it should be. And the reason why this is so important is because what ends up happening, if you build your worldview and faith system on cultural trends, then the only thing it's going to take for your tower to fall over again is a new cultural trend. But with Christians and with what my belief, when you test Scripture and study it and are formed by it and live under its word, then what happens is this, is that the faith that is built is one that stands when you come and you go, well, if I give to church, does God give me a Ferrari? And you say, well, where is that in the Bible? And you find that there's nowhere in the Bible because Ferraris weren't invented yet. You start to build a faith that can be resilient as you find out what is godly generosity and giving of money. When you start to ask, should I believe everything the pastor says from the front? And you find out, actually, no, we should discern together. And not everything the pastor says is true. Amen? amen. That was a trick. Why did you say amen? 
right? And we actually start to reconstruct the faith. Some of you don't need to hear this. Why? Because you're in church, right? Like your faith is, maybe it's doing okay. But why do I say this? Because I actually think that at the center of this all, the biggest problem with construction, deconstruction, is reconstruction, is we start with the wrong point. We go, well, I want to know why I should save sex till marriage. It's the wrong point to begin with. Some of you are like, well, I want to know that, you know, can I really trust Genesis? Now, that's a really good question, but it's the wrong point to begin with. Because I think the greatest question at the core of the Christian faith, that every faithful process of deconstruction of Christianity, or if you're a non-Christian here today, the only question you need to be occupied with concerning is a question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. Who do you say I am? Because the gospel begins and ends with the Alpha and the Omega who was there in Genesis, who will be here in Revelation, and he was present in the gospels, the living incarnate flesh on flesh word of God. Friends, if Jesus isn't who he said he is, you don't need to worry about what the Bible says. If Jesus wasn't the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior, the Messiah, then don't worry about what church should be because it doesn't matter. Too often we start with the wrong starting point. But this is why Jesus says what? I am the cornerstone. I am the cornerstone. And if you're walking through doubt and faith, can I encourage you, where you begin is not in wondering about maybe secondary issues, but primary ones. And the most crucial one, I believe, is, is Jesus who he said he would be? Is Jesus who he said he would be? Who did Jesus say he would be? In that moment with Nicodemus, you want to know where that story ends? It ends with John, the writer of the gospel, starting to go on a bit of a tirade, revealing to us who Jesus is. At the end of the discussion with Nicodemus, do you know what he says about Jesus? He says, For God so loved the world, that whosoever believes in this cornerstone shall not die, but have everlasting life. For Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Do you believe that, friends? Because if Jesus is your king, then the next question is not, do I like what the Bible says about X, Y, or Z? But if Jesus is my king, the question is, Jesus, what does it mean for me to submit X, Y, or Z under your lordship and your authority and your truth? I believe the reason why we're in a deconstruction epidemic right now is because we've never started with the right cornerstone. We start with cultural Christianity, people behaving like Christians, not believing like Christians. People being nice and raising hands in church, but still not believing that Jesus is their King of Kings, their Lord of Lords, and their Savior of Saviors. I just, I just want to ask this simple question today. If you are here and you are struggling with deconstruction, can I offer a suggestion? The most important question that you could answer is not necessarily, is church good? Is sex right or wrong? What we should do with our money? The most important question is this, who is Jesus and can I trust him? And if you're a Christian here, the most important question you could offer to the world to have clarity around, to not just know the answer to, but to live the answer, is who is Jesus? And can I trust him? But Michael, what about hell? Can you trust Jesus? Can you trust him? So when Jesus talks about hell, we can trust what he says about hell is one of a God who is just, is good, is loving, is filled with grace, mercy, and justice. Well, we'll go, Michael, what about sex? Well, if 
Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords who loves you more than anybody else. Whatever Jesus says about that must be good, must be loving, must be just. And we can ask him, Jesus, I don't understand. By the power of his Holy Spirit, he walks us through scripture and reveals to us his truth. Friends, the biggest question you've got to answer is this one. Who do you say that Jesus is? And here's my problem. We are filled with parents who are trying to get their children to act like Christians rather than parents who are, who are vision casting a compelling vision of a beautiful Savior. What is going to hold your children firm through university isn't religious doctrine. It's personal revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. And if it hasn't been given to you, if you have not got that personal revelation yourself, how can you compelling offer it to other people? Where do we start? We start by saying, Jesus, come find me. Come reveal yourself to me. Because in the parable of the good shepherd and the lost sheep, does the sheep find the shepherd or does the shepherd find the sheep? The shepherd finds the sheep, which means that, friends, if you do not know who Jesus is, you do not need to worry about finding him. You just need to worry about asking. Because the sheep just says, good shepherd, come find me. I believe he will. I believe he will. I sat with a man in my office a couple months ago and he was deconstructing his faith and he was talking about Old Testament, New Testament revelations. I just asked him this simple question. I said, can I just ask you a question? Who do you say Jesus is? And he says, I don't want to answer that. So why? And he just started to reveal to me that because he recognized that that undid everything. Christians, do you have a revelation of King Jesus? Of friend Jesus? It's where we begin. That's the hope we offer a post-modern, post-Christian, deconstructing world. When we can look them in the eye and say, I found the way. I found the truth. I found the life. Would you stand with me? I don't know how you're going to clear that cow. First service was little Jenga blocks, and someone's like, hey, for online, let's get big Jenga blocks. You're welcome online. I'd just love you to pause for me in this moment, with me in this moment. There will come a day where the world will recognize that what we think about Jesus moves from opinion, opinion to reality. I think we're already there, but, but there will come a day where Jesus will return for his bride. Not as just a savior, but as a king. And my prayer for you today, whether you're online right now or you're in the room, is that you would know that King Jesus came not to condemn you, but to save you, to offer you life and life in all its fullness, that everything he would ask of you is what he would ask that you would flourish to its fullness. So I want to create a moment right now for, for just the Holy Spirit to reveal the beauty and character and nature of Christ to us. So if you're in the room and you don't know King Jesus yet, and I want to identify some of you have been coming to church for 20 years and you don't know Jesus. You know about him. You don't know him. Some of you your first day in church right now and you're like, man, I, I, if Jesus is real, I'd love to know. And some of you are here and you're in the middle of deconstruction. I want to let you know there is truth. It can be found. His name is Jesus. If that's you, you're one of those people. I just want you to hold your hands out in front of you. Jesus, when Thomas doubted, 
you, you got his fingers and you placed them in your side and you touched his hands. His hands touched the holes in your hands. You say, come and see. To Andrew, you say, come and see. Jesus, you, you do not hide from us in some cosmic game of Marco Polo. I believe that you want to reveal yourself to us by the power of your Holy Spirit as God, as Savior, as King. So I pray right now for all those with their hands outstretched. I pray that there would be a moment, Father, where you, good shepherd, would find them, good sheep. And you will call us home. May our faith not be built on cultural Christianity, but on biblical, Christ-centered, gospel-rich Christianity. As a people who follow the way. If that's you right now, I just get that sense. I just want you to lead you in that prayer. You can just pray it whenever you're ready. Good shepherd, come find me. Say those words whenever you want. Good shepherd, come find me. As we see in this moment, the band's just going to sing a bridge over us. It's this bridge about the beauty of Jesus. And as we do, I'd just love you to sing as you see fit or as you feel led. Sing this song out. And if you're not comfortable singing it yet, let the words wash over you and may Jesus make himself known to you. Let's worship God together.